Hi everyone, thanks for joining us today. My name is uh, Steve Greenfield. I'm the Director of Third Party Risk here at Venminder. Today we're, we're pleased to uh, be joined by phone by uh, the President and CEO of the NBA, Dave Stevens. Dave, um, previous to joining the, the NBA, has a, a vast, very career of over 34 years in the mortgage finance industry and actually worked under the Obama administration as the Assistant Secretary for Housing and also served as the Federal Housing Commissioner at HUD Housing Urban Development. Dave's career covers pretty much everything in, in mortgage finance, which includes sales, acquisitions, investments, risk management, and regulatory oversight. And today we're actually going to focus on the relationship between risk management and regulatory oversight as it pertains to third-party risk. Uh, Dave, thanks for the time today um, joining us at your busy schedule. Uh, Dave, just with, with your very background, obviously, President and CEO of the MBA, can you talk a little bit about your background regarding um, regulatory oversight and, and risk management experience that you bring to the table and how you really see those disciplines coming together as it applies to third-party risk today? Sure. Well, um, you know, I've, I've been in the industry for well over three decades, and I, I started on the uh, origination side alone back in the early 1980s, but through my career, I ended up in senior roles as responsible for risk management, profitability, um, and had some direct legal exposure in, in public company. I was, a, I, was, I was the senior vice president at Freddie Mac and ran the single family business there for almost a decade uh, where we approved, you know, uh, lenders of all shapes and size to do business with us and approved credit terms and pricing policies, et cetera. And I was executive vice president at Wells Fargo Home Mortgage, and I ran the wholesale lending platform, uh, all aspects of it. So, um, Profitability, risk, et cetera, all was under my responsibility. And uh, I did a stint as heading one of the largest real estate companies in the nation um, and all of their mortgage companies. And I, we had two independent mortgage banking companies that I ran. Uh, and so from that standpoint, I was responsible to investors for every aspect related to mortgage finance as every other lender is involved with today. And then I was uh, brought into the Obama administration in 2009 and uh, was confirmed by the United States Senate to be the Assistant Secretary of Housing and the Federal Housing Commissioner uh, right in the peak of the recession. And during my reign there, I took action actually against well over a thousand lenders um, that uh, had violated and had struggled under uh, the the market correct that that precipitated the the worst since the depression. And so, all of regulatory oversight for the FBI program was my authority. Okay, great. How much do you think of, of that piece of it was falling under third-party risk, and, and what kind of risk did you see then, and what risk do you see now presenting the industry when it comes to, you know, the increased use of, of um, third-party vendors today? Well, um, you know, it, it's it's a uh, it, it's a guns or butter uh, challenge because the costs for compliance, uh, particularly post-recession and the implementation of much of the Dodd-Frank uh, uh, rulemaking, as well as the increased enforcement risk coming from HUD and elsewhere through False Claims Act and more, has put a significant cost burden onto the loan origination market uh, globally. And um, and assignee liability, uh, 
which makes investors in mortgages downstream, even ultimately in securitization, uh, at risk stakes made at the point of sale at origination um, only exacerbates the problem. And so what most institutions did as a response, uh, I didn't see as much of prior to the recession, is they've had to hire under contract form uh, third-party inst- third vendors to validate or perhaps even do all of the compliance uh, and risk management uh, checking. And I think they've done it for, again, two reasons. One is just the cost burden of, of, recruit, of hiring and maintaining that kind of workforce in, inside an institution is far more expensive than uh, using a third party. And two, I believe that the regulators, the OCC and others, uh, uh, actually supported the use of a third party because it was viewed as an independent validator. The, the contrary side of that, the risk side of it, on the other hand, is you know that your third party uh, is acting and giving you and feedback uh, in, uh, in, in the most accurate manner, and are they missing? Um, are they missing things that could put you as an institution at risk? So when you rely on third parties, you take the good and the bad, and how do you make certain that that third party uh, vendor, which can be anywhere from compliance to risk management to uh, pricing and hedging, as an example, um, how do you their their tools and effectiveness are uh, enough to keep you safe and sound as an institution? And you know, ultimately, I think as we all know, most third-party vendors have very limited rep and warrant uh, um, support and, and, and certainly more limited capital in most cases to back up a rep and warrant than a, than a regulated financial institution. So um, it's, it's an interesting paradox that we're in, which is you have, to have a, you have to have a third-party vendor relationship in order to control your costs and uh, have checkers checking the checkers, as it were, but on the other hand, uh, you also need to make certain that those vendors are providing accurate and compliant uh, feedback and information because in the end of the day, they're not the ones on the hook. It's the institution that created those mortgages or wherever they are in the process where the party vendor. So, I mean, we often say that while you can outsource the function, the, the actual risk uh, still lies with you as the organization. So. Kind of validating that information, Absolutely. making sure that that they have a compliance system in place is really really key to that operation. Do you think there's a lot of um, yeah strategic advantages as well with the outsourcing piece? Oh um, well, strategic. I, 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 I'm uh, you know in, in my view, it's a matter of efficiency and effectiveness, and um, uh, and so you know. I, I, I worked at companies where I had multiple third-party vendors taking uh, everything from my pipeline hedge, uh, pre-funding, post-funding, uh, servicing, and more um, because I, I wanted that independent oversight that wasn't influenced by commissions or other distorted compensation structures um, that that worse outcomes. And so I slept that night knowing that I, there were third-party vendors yeah. uh, involved, but I worried about them as much. And I think the, the, the downstream 
effect. I I'll, I won't name the the bank, but there's a large regional bank who I spent a, a significant amount of time just looking at how they were doing it because I was curious uh, as an example what they were doing, and they were identifying. I mean, they had a, their error rates were you know in the 90% range uh, because every loan file has some sort of technical error in it. And so they had they, they began to have a very difficult time understanding what was material and what was immaterial, and the third-party vendor had a difficult time telling them that because they didn't want to be responsible ultimately. They would identify a defect but not tell you how critical it is. And okay. so um, – but I do think from a strategy standpoint as an institution, you need scalability ultimately in your business model, and outsourcing – allows you to be much more scalable. Uh, you can grow or contract the use of a third-party vendor based on uh, your volumes, and you can't do that if you have fixed staff uh, internally in your system. I do believe that, in a general sense, the use of third-party creates independent validation, um, particularly if they're well and respected and uh, have a track record. And so I think for, for a company, um, again, using the I can sleep better at night analogy, I, I, I think the third-party market is important. Okay, great. Thanks, Dave. So, you know, if we look back at 2017, it seemed like every other day um, in the press, at least in social media, there was, um, you know, headlines regarding data breaches. What advice would you have, um, or at least from the MBA perspective, for MBA members and also, you know, end consumers that, that are reading these headlines of, of data breaches, certainly as it uh, essentially, you know, impacts their consumer data? Yeah. Well, Look, MBAs, we may be uh, a small employee for but we have uh, a couple thousand institutions members who we are suddenly, a, in essence, a vendor or a counterparty risk to them uh, because we get data from them. And we get data breach attempts at the MBA, attacks on us consistently. And uh, I've talked to several financial institutions who told me the numbers of uh, attempts that they get hit with by the hour, uh, let alone the day. And so it's a huge risk. Uh, and so having a third-party security firm, data security firm, uh, that, that is whose sole job it is to find out what you're doing wrong and, and, uh, and then make suggestions and recommendations to modify your uh, technology, both internal and external is critically important. And we've, you know, oftentimes those recommendations come at the, uh, you know, with, without the support of your employee base because all of anything you do to protect data creates challenges for employees uh, working in the organization. But, um, you know, obviously this is absolutely of critical importance today and it's moving, it's in real time. And I think it's almost impossible for any company that manages IT security internally. But, um, and so, uh, you know, you, there's no way to overstate the importance of uh, third-party um, data security support uh, in, in, in an organization where we're dealing with so much privacy data. Sure. So, I mean, I think we've 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 seen a lot in the press recently regarding just the fact that you know financial institutions are really you know investing heavily into into cybersecurity. And some of the data breaches last year, I think we've we've talked about it in the past that we've said 
Um, it's not so much a matter of if they'll be hacked, it's just a matter of when it, it will is coming. It's just a matter of how you actually deal with that, that fallout, if you will. Great. Well, I mean, you know, the interesting, the interesting thing, one very large public data breach uh, that then, you know, massive congressional reaction and more, uh, and this was, you know, what was considered to be one of the most respected, reputable data management uh, companies that that works with, you know, extremely private, uh, protected uh, information from and, you know, in interestingly enough, that company had signed a, an exclusive agreement with one of the GSEs for a program that they were implementing uh, to um, get competence in loan quality at the point of sale. And mm -hmm. obviously this, this particular check of, of consumer information was important to that process technically. And so, you know, to your point, there is no system that's not going to be likely hacked at some point. And so, um, you know, you have to do everything possible and make it a, a core part of your investment strategy as a company to try to stay as close to ahead of it as you can. And I, I don't think there's any way that can be done uh, internally. And uh, I think you 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 need um, you know you need someone who's got great forensic capabilities to be able to help you stay one step ahead of the the hack that's going to take you down as a company. Sure, and I think you know one of the things we talked about um, is really kind of the current environment where we're looking at maybe or potentially um, deregulation to some aspect of it. What's interesting is that you know deregulation is often greeted with a sigh of relief, um, but there's also that sense that you know maybe you kind of take your eye off the issues and you know certainly risk is not going to diminish just because of deregulation. If anything, it'll, it will increase. Um, what what advice would you give to you know another CEO? Um, that's looking at deregulation and, and thinking that they can maybe you know stop funding stop funding that compliance culture. Yeah, well, look, we we were there, right? We were there, um, and that's what literally literally led up to the sort of house of cards scenario where everything fell apart in the housing finance system. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a it was a breakdown in risk management on the credit side. Uh, that drove it. Um, and this was, as we all know, the data sophistication to IT sophistication uh, has significantly um, expanded since the recession. But this that breakdown was simply due to a breakdown in the credit culture. And most of the regulation has been designed to instill a permanent kind of credit culture into the markets. There's other aspects of the regulatory framework that go beyond that, but it's primarily been designed to create a uh, a risk control methodology that will be maintained over the long run, and uh, everything from consumer protection to uh, to data integrity to credit quality. And um, to that end, you know, our concern is, and look, I run a trade group of mortgage bankers, and I hear constantly uh, people either popping champagne bottles because they think that. Uh, the change to the, a new regulator at the bureau under President Trump is going to somehow make their lives easier. Um, you know, our view is, and my view very strongly is, uh, we've created a culture now that we can actually defend to consumers and to other regulators mm -hmm. that we're we're self-managing our risk uh, because the rules are in place. And yes, it's costly, 
uh, and those costs are being uh, transferred on to consumers in most cases. In some cases, it creates a challenge for smaller companies because the fixed costs are so high that they can't leverage scale. Um, but in the end of the day, I, I, I think to the tenor of your question, I think a, a rollback of uh, regulations, if it were if it were sort of unprecedented in a way to sort of eliminate all the imp impacts uh, and decisions made post Dodd Frank, I think that would be a big mistake. Um, you know, we consumer trust was, you know, went entirely against the financial services industry uh, and our third-party research firms to actually evaluate in our industry and trust by specific brand name firms, which we kept confidentially internally, but we what kind of uphill challenge we had to build our reputations back as an industry. And I honestly believe the regulatory environment has helped that to some degree. Now, granted, as we all know, there are still issues in the financial services industry, and even in the last months, you know, of some very large financial institutions have uh, been, um, you know, caught or accused of doing things that harm their customers. And so, you know, it's it's a very difficult environment when for anybody who would argue to dismantle regulation, I my own view is that would be a mistake, uh, that our reputation and credibility is what's going to drive a positive business experience and grow our companies over the long run. Great. Thank you. I agree. Um, Talk a little bit about the CFPB, and you know you've mentioned the CFPB many times in in speeches and, and obviously other conversations we've had. Um, what are, what are your concerns, or the MBA's concerns at least, with the you know increased harm to data collection? We've talked you know initially today about um, data security and um, just you know protection of consumer data. How do you feel about the CFPB and the you know that increased push? Yeah, so I you know look. There, no, no regulator, government regulator, is going to do everything right or, uh, or everything wrong, and I'd say that's the same for the bureau. Um, I, I do believe there's a lot of things that can be changed at the bureau to provide, you know, better consistency, um, more clarity in rules, et cetera. As it relates to Humda, um, I, I'm deeply concerned about the Humda, the new Humda fields that have to be collected. Um, you, you know, there is absolutely, as we said earlier. I have complete confidence that the CFPB cannot protect its data. Um, when I left the administration uh, after being the Assistant Secretary of Housing and went back to the private sector, there was a data breach um, of HUD's uh, systems. And the government ended up providing me uh, you know, one of those um, uh, credit monitoring services that they paid for me and tens of thousands of other government employees at the time because their systems were breached. It was re relatively uh, innocent in terms of what they could have gotten from that data breach because we weren't doing transactional and we didn't and we didn't provide transactional information other than loans originated in the FHA program itself. How collect such finite personal data information that you can clearly reverse engineer that data back to uh, uh, back to the individual borrower and who they are and where they live. And you can clearly know if they're, they've had, you know, bankruptcy issues or anything else that went on in their lives. It's extraordinarily risky personal data to have out exposed. So in the case of Humda, my question is, what are they trying to solve for? That's clearly a tool being used primarily to enforce fair lending risk. Uh, I can't see any other purpose for collecting those additional fields. 
And my, my, own, my own sense is that's putting the consumer at far greater risk than the reward of what they're going to get by getting that additional data in those fields. Yeah, I agree. It's um, certainly scary and certainly feels like a, a big brother type of mentality there. Um, just to kind of wrap up a couple of items as well, you know, you've spoken at great length in the past, uh, specifically in Boston, actually, regarding the, the importance of, of family and um, and community in the industry and about you know the opportunity to work together. Um, what would you what would you give the advice? What would your advice be at least to those third party vendors? How they can kind of support the mortgage industry and um, you know what what would be best practices that they can actually adopt to you know help you in in that mortgage industry. Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I think we have a broad. I don't think it's my my thoughts on that subject are not just isolated the third party vendor market. I think there's a a sense of society and mutual obligation that exists institutions in the marketplace whether they're vendors or lenders or servicers or wherever they sit in the food chain of the mortgage finance process. But I do believe in a general theme that if you do right by the, by the consumer, by the customer, uh, your business will grow. And um, everything should be sort of built in that way. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing right by the customer by giving them a, you know, no-doc, negative AM, 100% financed loan like happened pre-recession because yep. you're giving them an unsustainable you're giving them an unsustainable loan product and actually going to cause more harm than good and so I think the balance uh, in the in the relationship between vendors and uh, the, the origination community uh, have a sense of responsibility and sustainability and that message and theme should always be like communicate almost branded uh, in the dialogue that we have with real estate agents and potential home buyers and regulators and legislators as we go forward, because at the end of the day, if you talk about risk management, you believe it, and um, and in, in, as a as a final theme to being able to have a long-term, growing, sustainable business model, uh, you're going to get a lot of heads nodding yes in favor of, of that message rather than simply screaming that you're over-regulating me, it's costing me too much, and uh, I need an easier way to do mortgages. Because uh, I think one one message creates a, a level of confidence and trust, and the other sounds more about profits and greed. And I think our, our, our industry collectively has a long – we've come a long way, and we have to make sure we don't slip back into this business sounding like it's reckless and purely after profit. Sure. No, I appreciate that. Um, Dave, obviously, um, you know, last year I graduated at the um, the MBA in Denver, um, picked up my CMB designation. Great, great experience. And I know that, you know, you came in and, and spoke to the uh, graduate class. What what other resources uh, are open to MBA members when it comes to education, and it's particularly, you know, regarding third-party risk? Oh, oh, so the first thing I always tell uh, any 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 member of our industry whose company is a member of the MBA is you're you're a member of the MBA because your company is a member and there's a ton of resources you can take advantage of. Um, in the in sort of the fintech or or third party space, we have committees you can be you can participate in. Uh, we obviously have which set standards and practices uh, that can uh, 
everything related to risk management and take this and instill them. Um, we have a huge library of education classes that, that you can go through. And, and, and I think, as you know, when you go through CMB, it's the culmination of all the uh, of most education programs. You know, you're 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 a, a, a prolific ability. It's in everything from loan administration and regulation to uh, production and operations. And so, you know, my own my own perspective is that if you're really going to be a professional in this business, you need to embrace all aspects of the business and not just be isolated to the one channel where you're currently employed and make a living. I think you're better off the more you learn. And uh, and so for any individual who listens to this, whose company is a member of the MBA, just call us uh, or or email us, and uh, you can take get access to our programs. And for diversity candidates, we have a scholarship program uh, that's available um, where they can get scholarship to pay for the classes. So, you know, it's, there's great opportunity in, in your career and your understanding of the business and a broader sense of how this industry functions beyond your respective role in the industry today. Uh, simply by getting involved, and that includes that goes for third-party companies as well as lenders. So we have we have 100 institutions who are members of the MBA, and you know about 900 of those are third-party companies. Um, and that's a big aspect of of the association. Sure, sure. Well, Dave, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your schedule. Um, for everyone listening, this was uh, Dave Stevens, President and CEO of the MBA. Dave, thanks again for your insight and leadership, um, certainly as it, as it respects to the industry and, and how you're taking this forward. Um, best of luck and thanks so much.